Please be seated. And let's turn to the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 23, this evening, Sunday nights, through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. And we'll pick things up in verse 32, actually verse 33, but we'll jump back a single verse to give some context. And we remember the last time that we were in uh, this uh, Luke's Gospel, there was Jesus as he had already been through uh, the two trials on the morning of his crucifixion, uh, the trial at the hands of the uh, religious leaders, and then the secular trial under Pontius Pilate, and then Pontius Pilate, in order to please the crowd, uh, condemns Jesus to death. In verse 32, we're told, and there were also two other criminals that were uh, led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, they, uh, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. And so Jesus crucified between these two criminals. Uh, they were guilty of capital crimes. And uh, so he is, as one is on the left and on the right, as the old saying goes and the old song goes, he is occupying the uh, center uh, cross. All of this is a fulfillment, and we'll see the fulfillment of prophetic Scripture all the way through uh, this scene of his crucifixion, as we might expect. But Isaiah had prophesied that concerning Messiah that he was numbered with the transgressors, and so it happened. Jesus was crucified, we're told here, at a place called Calvary, also known as Golgotha, Golgotha meaning uh, the place uh, of the skull. It is always, it, it, it's interesting to me in all four of the Gospels in, in terms of how spare uh, the account is of the actual crucifixion. Not the events while he's on the cross, but there's no elaboration related to the nails being driven through the hands and through the feet and, and all of the other things that constituted the horror of a, a crucifixion at the hands uh, of the Romans. It's just laid out as simply as can be, there they crucified Him. And maybe there's no need for the Holy Spirit to give us an elaboration related to crucifixion uh, because in those days everyone would have been completely familiar with uh, the horrors and the awfulness of what was involved in a crucifixion. And it was enough simply to say that someone was crucified for the entire picture to be pulled up um, into their minds. The Jewish historian Josephus called crucifixion the most wretched of all ways of dying. And Josephus, who was a Jewish freedom fighter early on in his life, one of the Jewish zealots, then uh, uh, changed sides when his, his life was threatened with the other zealots at the hands uh, of Rome, and he switched sides to the Romans, and then he became a historian for, uh, for that, that era. And of course, if you're going to travel with Rome in those days and, uh, and watch the conquest of uh, of, it, uh, of Israel in terms of the putting down of revolution at the hands by the, by the Romans, you are going to see crucifixion after crucifixion after crucifixion. Uh, famously in Rome's history, they had a, an entire line of, 
of uh, crucified people every so many yards down, I think it was the Appian Way, all the way from Rome down to the south. I mean, this was a common thing that occurred within uh, the Roman Empire and people, the way that people were treated that were guilty in Roman eyes of, of a capital crime. And, a, and crucifixion was designed to make death as painful and as uh, lingering uh, a death as a person had the power of endurance. This was probably one of the reasons that people would come out and they would watch the crucifixion. And Rome intended the crucifixions to be a, a horrible thing. I mean, imagine if you saw one, how it would impact you for the rest of your life, let, let alone seeing them right outside of the city of Jerusalem on a regular basis. But Rome crucified in order that uh, it would become a deterrent to crime and, and uh, revolution uh, within its empire. And this is what happens now if you uh, rebel against Rome or against her uh, laws. And, and so there was this element in coming to a crucifixion and a sense in which every crucifixion was different because it would unfold uh, uniquely according uh, to the strength of the individual that was crucified. And then you would watch all of the torture that would lead up to the death. And crucifixion, ultimately, how you were killed was you would simply suffocate. There would come a point in time where you could pull yourself, uh, push against the nails in your feet to, to lock your legs in order to draw in a breath, pulling also on your arms, and then letting out, letting out the breath, and then doing that over and over and over again until every breath became uh, the equivalent of a, a massive trial until you would come to the time where you simply had no more strength to lift yourself up and then now you couldn't fill your lungs with air and you would die of suffocation upon the cross. And Jesus hung upon the cross for our sins for six hours before He gave up His Spirit in order to uh, 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 to bring an end to his life. If he had not uh, commended his spirit to God the Father, he'd still be on that cross in Jerusalem. No man takes my life, he said. I lay it down of my own accord. But how many breaths uh, did Jesus take in six hours? How many breaths would you imagine you take in six hours? And the endurance of what it is that he went through uh, on the cross. The origin of crucifixion began with uh, <clears throat> Persia. That's where it originated in from Persia. It passed on to uh, North Africa and was a prevalent means of capital punishment in Carthage. Uh, and it was in Carthage that the Romans became exposed to it early in their empire and then made it the means of capital punishment within the Roman uh, Roman Empire. One of the reasons that this is fascinating, I think, for us and in the light of fulfilled Scripture is that in the Old Testament prophecies, the Old Testament prophecies declared that when the Messiah came, He would die, not for His own sins, but for our sins. And you would think, based upon the law of Moses, that if He were ever born into human history, 
and then somehow was going to be put to death by his own people, that he would be put to death by stoning. That was the means of capital punishment under the law of Moses. But no, over and over and over again in the Old Testament, he is spoken of as dying by means of crucifixion. In other words, he had to be born into the world at a time when capital punishment was being meted out in some way, not around the world, but in Israel itself, the nation of the Jews, that it would not be stoning, but it would be by means uh, of crucifixion. And, of course, that is exactly what happened. In Psalm 22, again speaking about uh, fulfilled prophecies concerning Messiah, David wrote in, in speaking for the Messiah, for dogs have surrounded me, the assembly of the wicked has en enclosed me, they pierced my hands and my feet. Zechariah and Zechariah 12.10, and I will pour out, God said, on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication, and then they will look on me whom they have pierced. It's the Messiah speaking here. Yes, they will mourn for him as one who mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one who grieves for a firstborn. Speaking of the Jewish recognition of Jesus as their Messiah at Jesus' second coming and the, the mortifying sense that will come upon them when they realize that it wasn't some Gentile nation that put to death their Messiah, but that that blood was on their hands in the morning that they will uh, experience at Jesus' second coming with that revelation. Jesus, of course, understood that this would all be a fulfillment uh, of the Old Testament Scriptures. And as they were going up to Jerusalem, we're told, He took the twelve disciples aside on the road and He said to them, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn Him to death and deliver Him to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and to crucify, and the third day He will rise again. And so a fascinating fulfillment of Scripture against all odds uh, 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 prophetically, and yet that is uh, exactly uh, what, what happened uh, to Him. And then Jesus, as He's in this place and hanging upon the cross, surrounded by uh, these two criminals, He then prayed and He said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Now, if it was me, I'd, I'd say flame on. Uh, I used to be a big fan of the Fantastic Four. When I was a kid, I am a superhero. Uh, but... Uh, and I got the comics for free and everything. Long story, I won't head into it. Um, but, but he doesn't do that, interestingly enough. In the middle of that scene, he lifts a prayer up to the Father, and he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they are doing. And so Jesus takes and, and he uh, speaks to us as he taught us as his disciples, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who spitefully use you. And so Jesus takes and He practices exactly what He preached. 
But this is even more than him modeling for us and, and showing that he never taught us something that he didn't practice himself. It was also uh, the fulfillment of a prophecy concerning the Messiah. In Isaiah chapter 53, uh, verse 12, Therefore I will divide him a portion, speaking of the Messiah, with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death. He was numbered with the transgressors, he bore the sins of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Every inch of this crucifixion scene is a, a, a testimony to the, the fulfillment of prophecy that Jesus is the Messiah. And prophecy and the fulfillment of prophecies is one of the, the great um, witnesses to the inspiration of, of the Scriptures. And so as he hangs there on the cross, he offers the prayer up. And what they did, talk about being uh, insensitive at all to what it, where he was, they divided his garments and they uh, cast lots. We're told with a little greater clarity in the other Gospels that uh, they divided his, his uh, garments, his apparel, and then they cast lots for um, his robe. And so his robe probably was a, a nice robe and maybe made for him by the women disciples, or we don't know what, but it would have done no good for, say, the four Roman soldiers that were at the base of the cross to main, maintaining order around the cross for them to tear it into four pieces and each go with a piece. So they would cast lots. And, uh, and if uh, it was better to uh, uh, have a one in four chance of getting the entire robe than tearing it in four pieces and then nobody gets really anything out of it. And so uh, they cast the lots. Again, a fulfilling Old Testament prophecy concerning Messiah, this time in Psalm 22, verse 18, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast uh, lots. And the people stood looking on. So a great crowd is now uh, gathered here, uh, people uh, coming uh, just to see what the excitement is uh, concerning the event, kind of uh, crucifixion uh, looky-loos in uh, of the ancient world. And uh, this reminds me of when uh, the writer of the book of Hebrews declared concerning the crucifixion of Jesus that he endured the cross, but he despised the shame. Uh, the shame of being immodestly uh, crucified on that cross. And, and how much worse to be the very Son of God to be treated by his creation uh, in, in this way. But there they were uh, looking on uh, at his, his shame, and then even the rulers uh, were there in the crowd, and they sneered concerning Jesus. He saved others. Let uh, him save himself if he's the Christ or the Messiah, the chosen of God. So they can't really do anything else to him physically. Uh, and... Uh, I mean, every inch of his body is an open wound at this particular point in time. Uh, but just the evil heart of these Jewish religious leaders, and that's why you don't want to be religious. You want a relationship with God. Religious people can do awful things and have done awful things in history. One of the great shames of Christian history is the Crusades. 
And, but that was done not by average Christians like you and I. That was institutionalized religion that was uh, behind that, and namely Roman uh, Catholicism that was uh, behind that. But we all deal with the blot. And so often that's brought up, and especially uh, when there's an attempt to lump Christianity with Islam in terms of, of this kind of treatment of innocence and all but the difference is, is that Islamic violence and terrorism is done with, with, uh, with the uh, affirmation of passages from the Quran, and what was done in the Crusades was done in a complete uh, violation of what the Word of God has called us to be as Christians. They can't touch him physically. They've done all of that. The only thing left for them to wound now is his heart and the wound is mine. And they're so cruel and so sadistic now that they're not even going to give him rest on the cross. I mean, imagine that. Imagine the wickedness of that kind of heart. And, and now they begin to heap their, their scorn and their ridicule on him. He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. The interesting thing about this, two interesting things, is number one, they admitted he saved others. They admitted he saved others. This, this is a moment of honesty on the part of the Jewish religious leaders at the foot of the cross. And I think that they feel like they can be honest because there's no turning back from what has happened. They've accomplished their goals. It's going to happen. And so now there's no danger of speaking to uh, his innocence and his saving uh, of others. But they said, himself he cannot save. And no truer words were spoken of the Messiah. God makes everything to praise him, even the wickedness of man. Because if Jesus did save himself from the cross, and he could have readily done it, he could have never saved us from our sins. And so, just the sheer ignorance that is being communicated by the people who should have been the most enlightened about the Messiah the Jewish religious leaders at the base of the cross. The soldiers also joined in, and they mocked him, and they came and they offered him sour wine. It was common at the scene of a crucifixion for the Romans to offer, in, in, in the form of a sop, offer a, uh, a rag that was sated with wine in order for it to be put to their lips. They could drink it in order to bring an edge off of, of the pain. It was an act of mercy that was oftentimes done. But we're told here and we're told elsewhere in, um, <clears throat> in the other gospel accounts that they mixed the wine that they offered to Jesus with gall. And it was just uh, it was the kind of thing, again, that a junior high student, a, a worse kind of junior high students, not like the ones that attend here, um, <clears throat> the, just the worst kind of thing that you would do. Imagine a man, is, <clears throat> his body is open from head to toe and wounded. You have a chance to do what you would have done to uh, anyone, anyone else, but here you spike his with gall and you don't even give him that comfort. And the reason for it is given to us. They said, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. And it was because he claimed to be the king of the Jews and the Romans weren't on good terms with the Jews at that time. It was another way to spite Jesus 
uh, <clears throat> spite the Jews by spiting Jesus, uh, even as, <clears throat> as Jesus. They identify him with the Jews, but the Jews will have nothing to do with him. And an inscription was also written over Jesus uh, in letters of, <clears throat> of Greek, uh, and uh, Greek was the, the language of, uh, of the educated, and uh, uh, Latin was the language of the common man in the Roman Empire, and, and Hebrew the, the language of, uh, of, the, uh, of the Jews. And uh, Pilate, we're told elsewhere, he had this inscription uh, placed uh, above Jesus upon the cross, the accusation of his crime, this is the king of the Jews. What the Romans would do is if you were going to be crucified, is while you carried your cross to uh, Calvary, the site to be crucified, someone would walk before you with that plaque that would state what crime you were guilty of against the Roman Empire, again, as a deterrent. So no one would do this against Rome. This is where it ends. And, uh, and then once the person was placed up in the cross, the cross was then put in place, that accusation would be put above, uh, above uh, uh, his, his head. And this is the accusation. This is the king of the Jews. So Pilate, there are... Um, Pilate could have uh, put that uh, up there as a, uh, a mocking of the Jews. He had been uh, very, very badly uh, manipulated by the Jewish religious leaders on that, that morning, and he could be just scorning the Jews before the whole world. This is the king of the Jews. This is the best that they can uh, come up with. It may also, and is probably more likely, that... Uh, Jesus' claim to be the king of the Jews was the principal accusation of the Jewish religious leaders against him and the, the reason for why he was being crucified, and he put it up there. There's also the possibility, don't bet your house on it, but there's also the possibility that that became Pilate's assessment of Jesus after these events have gone by. You remember in Pilate's interrogation of Jesus alone, he, said, he asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, it is as you say. And maybe Pilate comes and this is the assessment now that he has made. But at any rate, this was put over, uh, uh, over the head of Jesus here upon the cross. And then one of the criminals who was hanged, uh, he began to blaspheme Jesus, saying, if you're the Christ, save yourself and us. So he's, he views him as a ticket out of this. Why don't you do something for yourself, and by the way, can uh, uh, do something for us as well in, in this scene. And then the other uh, uh, thief on the cross, he answered uh, the other thief, and he rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly. We're on this cross for our crimes. No, you and I can't complain uh, uh, about this. And, uh, uh, and we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he turned his attention to Jesus, and he said to him, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. 
And Jesus then engages him. He continues the conversation. It's a wonderful conversation that's happening while Jesus is on the cross. And Jesus said to him, Verily, verily, or assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in uh, paradise. We know, again, from the other gospel accounts that uh, as at the beginning of the time that Jesus was on the cross with these thieves, uh, both of the thieves mocked him uh, uh, while he was on the cross. And then somewhere in the course of, uh, of things, for one of the thieves, uh, things began to change. Again, all of their mocking, all of uh, the scorn uh, by the Jewish religious leaders and, and even the mocking uh, of others there, uh, here these thieves upon the cross, uh, all of it spoken of uh, in the prophetic Scriptures. Psalm 22 once again, all those who see me laugh me to scorn. Uh, they shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying, he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he uh, delights uh, in him. And so uh, here the one ceases his scorning. He ceases his blasphemy and uh, at some point in time, and uh, something about what it is that, that Jesus has done on the cross has silenced him. And then he proceeds to do something uh, very remarkable uh, here as we see him rebuking the mocking and the blasphemy uh, of his fellow criminal upon the cross. Now, you have to, you have to almost put yourself at that scene to uh, marvel at what it is that's happening inside of the heart and the life of, of this, this particular thief. I mean, all around Jesus, we don't know how far, what size the crowd or anything, but a substantial crowd. He is surrounded by a complete sea of unbelief. People calling for His death, people blaspheming, uh, him and insulting him, uh, the religious leaders laughing at him upon uh, the cross. And in this entire scene of unbelief and scorn, suddenly out of nowhere, this single voice comes forth in defense of Jesus. And it's the only one in the entire scene that, that does that. And this voice that comes to the defense of Jesus is one of the people hanging upon the cross. And there couldn't have been a more difficult scene in all of the world for a person to publicly identify with Christ in than that environment, and yet he does it. And to realize what a marvel it is, is that the disciples had long ago fled from him that morning under lesser danger. The apostle Peter had denied Jesus three times under far less, uh, far less uh, striking circumstances as Jesus upon, uh, 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 upon the cross. And the disciples, all of them now scattered in, in all directions as they're watching uh, from afar and in and, and some distance from Him upon the cross. And yet this man publicly deny, identifies with Jesus in the midst of the scene. And it's so marvelous to me that I look at the passage and I think to myself, Lord, is there a key in, in the account here in Luke and even putting all of the Gospels together? What in the world 
accounts for this about face in this man's life. And the only thing I can see in the gospel accounts is Jesus' prayer in verse 34, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And I'm convinced that that prayer began to work on that man. And it began to work on his heart, to work on his mind, till he stops his mocking, and then it continued to work on him until he defended Jesus, he believed upon Jesus, he even calls Jesus as Lord at that scene. And maybe for the very first time in his life, he heard God represented to him personally as a God who forgives. He certainly would have never heard it from the Jewish religious leaders of his day directed toward someone that had chosen the kind of life that he had chosen. There was only judgment from God uh, and, and uh, scorn from God for people like that. There was no forgiveness, no love of God toward uh, someone who had chosen to spend their life the way that this uh, thief did. But somehow when he heard it from the lips of Jesus, I think it changed him completely. It makes me stop and wonder when I see that prayer there in verse 34 and to stop and, and speak to ourselves today. And it, when is, do, can you remember the first time you heard the message of God's forgiveness in Christ, that God would forgive you of your sins and that God was a forgiving God that was calling us to salvation in His Son. Where would you be tonight? Don't shout out. Where would any of us be tonight without the forgiveness of God? Without the forgiveness of God. And a God who is willing to forgive even in circumstances and, and sins against Him even to this kind of a degree. Think about the, 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 the guilt that has been lifted off of our lives. Think about the things that we could never ever commit to Christ once and for all and say, I'm a new creation. This, this, uh, this is forgiven. This is something that is under the blood of Jesus Christ. I can move forward in a new kind of life instead of having these things lie upon us. What a marvel, what, a, what a, a grace and a privilege it is to not only know of the forgiveness of God, but it's our daily portion. It characterizes our own lives. What a life it has freed us to live that we would never otherwise uh, know. I know that my own mother uh, had an event in her life and, uh, and the guilt of it just crushed her. It just crushed her until she became a Christian. She could never, ever work her way away from it. And it was a lesson to me early in a, whatever spiritual state I was at that time in life to see what guilt could do to a human being before I ever came to realize experientially what it could do in my own life for my past. What a wonderful thing it is that God is a forgiving God. 
Sometimes you hear about this conversion of this thief, and sometimes they'll dismiss it as a, a deathbed confession. And I mean, what did he have to lose? <laughs> he's got he's the 11th hour and uh, 59th minute in, in terms of, uh, of, uh, of his life. And, uh, and so uh, he gets saved in the last minute. And so the great lesson of the passage is that anybody can get saved all the way to the final minute of their life. And that is probably the great lesson of it. And that's an important lesson for people to know. And I think about how many times I have, other, the pastors on this staff, maybe you have as well, been uh, ministering to someone that doesn't know the Lord yet, and they're in hospice care or whatever it might be, and to be able to use this event here, this individual, to speak of the fact that no matter what's in our past, God will forgive us of that sin. It's never too late to be saved as, we're, as long as we're on, on this side of, uh, of, of death. But the fact of the matter is, is that this, uh, his faith here, as it's described in this passage, is one of the most astonishing portraits of faith I think is found in the entire Bible. You notice in verse 40 that he rebuked the other thief. In verse 41, he confesses his sin. In verse 41, he declares Jesus to be without fault, to be sinless. In verse 42, he confesses Jesus to be the king of a kingdom. In verse 42, he believes that Jesus' kingdom is going to be established. In verse 42, he then asks to be a part of that kingdom. In verse 42, he has absolute faith in Jesus' power to save him, in Jesus' willingness to save him. And, and he does it all there at Calvary. And God gave him the grace to do that. We look and put our faith in Jesus Christ looking back. Looking back on the entirety of the story of his death, his burial, and his resurrection. This man puts his faith in Jesus Christ and in his death, in his burial, and in his resurrection before it has ever happened in human history. It is beautiful and astonishing. And then notice the request that he made of Jesus there in verse 42, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And this isn't just a request that he makes here, it is actually a profession of faith, a statement of faith. He believed that Jesus would rise from the dead. He believed that Jesus was a king. He believed that Jesus would rule over the entire world. And he said, when all of this happens to Jesus, when all of this happens, will you think of me? The astonishing faith, looking over as this man did to Jesus in that condition, and he puts in his faith in him for salvation. And Jesus' response, assuredly, verily, verily, I say to you, you will be, uh, today you'll be with me in paradise. And as Jesus died upon that cross, went down into Hades for the three days and three nights before his uh, resurrection, preaching to uh, Abraham's bosom, as we saw there in uh, Luke uh, chapter 16, and then at the time of his resurrection, uh, leading the captives from their captivity, as Paul put it, in, in his letter to the church at Ephesus, he cleared out the Abraham's bosom uh, side of things. And as Jesus gave that three days and three nights 
uh, a retreat, declaring himself to all that are down there to be the Messiah based upon the Scriptures. I would do anything for a recording of Jesus' teaching to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus on the evening of his crucifixion or his resurrection. And we get into that next week. But imagine having three days and three nights for Jesus to lay all of that out. And this thief upon the cross was on that scene. And he participated in all of it, saw all of it, and he, and he heard uh, all of it. And Jesus gave him this wonderful, wonderful promise. And now it was about the sixth hour, noon, and there was a darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. So for three hours, to, from noon till three, and then the sun was darkened. This great miracle of God, the supernatural that He brought to that, uh, that entire uh, scene. I think that there are a lot of reasons for the darkness as a miracle. Uh, and one of the things that I, one of the reasons that I think uh, God chose the, when God does a miracle, it's just not, uh, you know, watchful winkle, let me pull a rabbit out of my hat, or whatever the characters were in, in that. Rocky, you, you'll figure it out for me. But uh, some of you will. Um, uh, so he never does a miracle just to say, look, I can do a miracle. It's always to communicate uh, something. It's always intended to, to, to do that communication. And so I think that it communicated on, uh, in part uh, the heart of the Father related to uh, the scene of the treatment of His Son. And I think that God the Father is the most overlooked person associated with the scene of Jesus upon the cross. But it was a father's son who died on that cross. And this was a communication of the Father's presence upon that scene. I think the darkness was also given in order to provide Jesus with some semblance of privacy in the midst of all of this, in the same way that you might go, uh, somebody might be in a hospital bed and be uh, laid wide open and vulnerable to be gawked at and all, even as was happening with Jesus, and somebody then uh, pulls the shade around them for the sake uh, of privacy. It certainly speaks of the darkness of man's heart, that our, our hearts are uh, desperately wicked, and uh, that mankind would do this to their Savior and to their God. It communicated that. And I think it also communicated the fact that during those three hours were the three hours in which Jesus bore our sins upon the cross, and how He who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And certainly speaks to the spiritual warfare that he would have endured upon the cross and bearing our sins and uh, the warfare uh, that, that Satan was bringing against him and against his mission to supply salvation to mankind. And so God brings this wonderful, beautiful miracle uh, to, uh, of darkness upon the scene because it was and it remains and it ever will be the single darkest moment in human history. And yet, one of the wonderful things about it is that God is able to 
work things together for His good on such a, a level that He can take uh, even as malevolent a scene as this and turn it and work it for the salvation uh, of mankind. And so the sun was darkened and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And I think this was a miracle that was done as a message to the Jewish religious leaders. This tearing of the veil happens uh, at uh, three in the afternoon as Jesus gives up his, his life, as we'll see in a moment. The darkness was uh, uh, communicated the heart of God to the crowd that was out around Calvary. Uh, this tearing of the veil was a miracle to communicate to the Jewish religious leaders. At that particular moment in time, you would have had the high priest there uh, in the temple offering incense and, and different uh, uh, offerings there within the, the holy place of the, the two compartments of, of the temple. And, and then as he's in this scene and other priests outside of the temple itself, all of a sudden this veil begins to tear from top to bottom uh, before their eyes. And the veil, were, according to the Jewish Mishnah, the veil that hung between the Holy of Holies and the holy place was uh, fully six inches uh, thick. So if you think tearing a phone book uh, would be hard. Only God could tear that. One of the fascinating things to realize about uh, the temple and the makeup of the, the temple structure under the Old Covenant that it was basically had been set up to communicate separation. And so when you came to the temple to worship God, you would come to the court of the Gentiles and it was the farthest court away from the temple and you would have to stop there. Under penalty of death, you could not go further than the court of the Gentiles. The next court in would be the court of the women. So they could go that far, and then they would have to stop and could not move further. The next court that then was closer still to the area of the temple was the court of the men, and then even they had to stop uh, to the place of the actual grounds related to the temple that were given only to uh, the priests, only to the sons of Aaron to minister. And so you would come to worship God and you would be confronted with the fact that there are all these obstacles to me getting close to God. And all of it was designed to tell us and speak to in the Old Covenant, speak to the fact that our sin has separated us from God. And the temple was made up of two compartments. There was the larger compartment, uh, by, uh, twice as large as the inner compartment. The outer compartment was the holy place. It was a holy place, but not the ho holy of holies. And in that place there was the table of showbread. There was the candelabra. The priest would go in on a daily basis and minister to the Lord in there on behalf of the people. And, and all, all kinds of priests would go in to, to that section of the temple. But the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was that represented the presence of God, the, only the high priest could go into that particular room. And he could only go in one day out of the year, and he could only go in because God called him to, and only after offering a sacrifice for his own sin. 
So even among the priests, there was the average priest could go this far, but he could not go into there. Only one person, one time a year, could go into the Holy of Holies and enjoy that kind of access to God, to the very presence of God. And when God tears that veil from top to bottom, not from bottom to top, this was His doing, from top to bottom, He is communicating that in the death of His Son upon that cross, that now going forward, that old covenant is done, and now all of us have an access to God that was known only to the high priest one day out of the year. And the torn veil speaks of this unfettered access that we have to God to speak to Him in prayer, to talk with Him, to listen to Him, to praise Him anywhere we are, any time of the day or night, and know that what we do, our prayers, uh, are, uh, go to the very throne of God and they uh, are received by Him. And one of the things that I have to remind myself, because I'm a Gentile, I wasn't raised under the old covenant and and uh, all of the things that they were raised under where a Jewish person that realized because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, now we all have access to God, equal access to God in this way, it would have been mind-boggling to them in a wonderful way. But, uh, but because it's all I've ever known as a Christian, as a Gentile, as a Christian, I have to stop and remember and, and listen to things like this and know things like this to never lose my awe of what the death of Jesus Christ on the cross meant to the Father and what it means in heaven that you and I can enjoy the access that we uh, enjoy. And so here is the tearing of that veil as a witness to uh, uh, to the priestly community of this new access that was now going to bypass them, to bypass a religious institution that had been uh, even corrupted Judaism to such a degree that they were crucifying uh, their Savior. And when Jesus cried, had cried out with a loud voice, He said, Father, into Your hands I commit My Spirit. And having said this, he then breathed his last. And so when the centurion saw what had happened, this is a Roman centurion, toughest guys in the Roman military, by and large, and uh, over a hundred soldiers. And one of the, this guy was over the soldiers that handled crucifixions every single day in Jerusalem. So he saw plenty of crucifixions, and his response to the crucifixion of Jesus is he glorified God saying, certainly this was a righteous man. And then the whole crowd, uh, the looky-loo uh, uh, group, who came together to that site, seeing what had been uh, done, what they had come out to for entertainment, and it, and it hits them what, it, what has happened here. They then beat their breasts and they returned home. And I think they returned home in shame 
that they had come to watch what they had come to watch and to be entertained by uh, the death of this Jesus who claimed to be uh, the Messiah and now returning home to hope everyone in the world would forget that they ever played uh, their part in that scene. But all of his acquaintances, speaking of Jesus' acquaintances, and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. And behold, there was a man named Joseph, and he was a council member, a good and a just man, and he had not consented to their decision and their deed. He was from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. So Joseph of Arimathea was a member, uh, one of the 71 members of the Jewish Sanhedrin, one of the 71 most powerful Jewish religious leaders in the entire uh, world. And he was not a part of that trial, that, uh, that uh, monkey trial or whatever they call it, uh, that the religious leaders did to Jesus on, uh, on that morning. He played no part in it uh, at, at all. I don't think he was probably invited. And he had trusted in Jesus for his claims to be uh, the Messiah and waiting for the kingdom of God, a good man. And so he came to Pilate and he asked for the body of Jesus. Think about a man of this power and of this position, what he puts into jeopardy. He puts his physical safety in jeopardy. He certainly puts the future of his position on the Sanhedrin in jeopardy by showing, publicly showing an allegiance to Jesus and asking for uh, Jesus' uh, body. But his, his name goes down in history as, as one of the great names within the Bible because of what he did. And there's a funny thing about life. There are these strategic moments in life in which we have the uh, freedom or the choice to do the right thing in that moment. And five minutes after that moment, or one day after that moment, the opportunity is lost. It's a fleeting opportunity. Then we just join the bandwagon, uh, get on, on the bandwagon of whatever. But here was a moment where he was going to do this not knowing who was ultimately going to follow Jesus and, and say, I don't care what happens to my position in this nation. I don't care what happens to me physically here. I am going to identify with Jesus. And he asked Pilate for the body. And then he took it down and wrapped it in linen. And he laid it in a tomb that was hewn out uh, of the rock where no one had been laid before. And only loving hands would touch Jesus' body from the time of His death upon the cross to His resurrection. And that day was the preparation and the Sabbath drew near. And so it was the uh, end of the day and, and, and sundown is, is now approaching. There isn't the time to bury Jesus in, in the way uh, that uh, both uh, Joseph of Arimathea or the, the women disciples of Jesus would have wanted to. And so they were forced to depart by just leaving his body wrapped in linen 
uh, in the tomb. And the women who had come with him from Galilee, they followed after and for the purpose of observing uh, which tomb his body had been placed in and in order that they would then uh, return home, prepare the spices and the fragrant oils. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, during the Sabbath day, they rested on that Sabbath day according to the commandment related to the Sabbath, so they could then take those oils and those spices to come then on the Sunday to give Jesus' body a, a proper burial and a proper uh, anointing of his, his body. And so we finish here the account of Luke related to the crucifixion of our, uh, of our Savior and the resurrection follows, Lord willing, uh, as we would get into it next week. Uh, an old friend of mine, a gentleman by the name of uh, Will, William McDonald, Bill McDonald, he's home in heaven now. <clears throat> and I remember him speaking one time, and he was such a profound uh, influence upon my life as a Christian man. And um, uh, he, really he really was an example of Christ to me in a way that I had, I had never, ever seen in my life before. And uh, his word, as he would teach the word, it was so powerful um, to me, so simple and so clear. And I, um, I remember hearing him say related to partaking of the Lord's Supper, which is a memorial related to Jesus' death upon the cross and his life given for the forgiveness of our sins. And, and he said, the hardest service I ever uh, oversee is a communion service. Uh, to in some way endeavor to um, even scratch the surface in terms of the majesty of what it is that Christ did for us um, at the cross on Calvary and the record of it here within the Scriptures. And I think that anyone that attempts to uh, teach on this passage feels the same way I certainly do. And so praise the Lord for worship, a chance to worship the Lord and to thank Him as the worship team would come forward now. And I'd like them to lead us in a little bit of worship here to close our service and allow us just to meditate upon the glory of the scene, the glory of our Savior, and to give Him thanks and to give Him praise and, and to uh, bless His name for how good He has been to us in His Son. If you are here this evening and you have never trusted in Jesus as your Savior for the forgiveness of your sin, uh, there is none so good in life that they don't need to be saved and none so bad that they can't be saved. Jesus is a sinner's Savior. He's a match for every need that we have. And if you would like to become a follower of His, a disciple of His, to be born again spiritually tonight, We'll be up in front immediately after the service, and we'd love to answer your questions and pray with you to uh, be born again. If you need prayer for anything in your life tonight, any of us here this evening, uh, we would love to pray with you and for you uh, as well. Mike, would you close us now?